You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. We are currently in a sermon series called Where We Are and Where We're Going, a vision series on direction in an unprecedented time. Stay with me for the reading of God's Word today. Today the passage comes from Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with his 10,000 men to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the others are still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, everyone who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a beautiful, sunny Sunday. Thank you for the chance to gather together and just see these faces. Thank you for a family. Thank you for a place that we can come broken and still know that we're loved. Father, I pray that you just use the words today to bring the heart of the gospel to each person in here, myself included. And any word that just hinders that, I just pray it falls on deaf ears. So we pray for a moment with you today, in Christ's name, amen. So uh, when I was asked if I would speak as the family minister on behalf of family ministry and just kind of giving an update of what we were doing and what we're planning on, I thought, sure, what verse do I pick? And then it hit me, the one that talks about hating families. <laughs> And it's funny because I, like, that literally was the first verse that came to mind, but I could not shake it. And I kept praying about it. I was like, that's an awkward text. Uh, but I kept going there for, for one specific reason. And, and I imagine some of you, when you heard the text, maybe thought the same. Or even just this uh, point that I just made that today we're going to talk about family ministries. We're not really. Um, wondering Why? Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, this isn't a, a ministry I'm involved in, so is this for me today? I'm very aware of that. And you'll get a little bit of family ministry stuff at the end, but this text has a certain heart in it um, that I think is, is definitely the, the heart that I'm trying to follow and lead with Sojourn Kids or our student ministry, S2. It doesn't matter. It seems to be the same heart 
that should be the motivating factor behind every act of worship and devotion and discipleship we have here, and not just at J-Town, but any church. So why does this verse matter? Why does this idea matter of devotion, counting the cost? To that, I want to start with a short story. Um, I have uh, one thought in mind. This is also why I kept coming to this verse, and it's the story of Rhett and Link. Has anybody in here ever heard of Rhett and Link? They're all, they're, they're, yeah, these famous YouTubers. So this is like back in the day, like, I don't know, early 2000s. I don't know when YouTube started. But imagine how hard it is to stay popular in our YouTube culture. They somehow continue to gather followers and, and, and just, when I, I graduated in 2000, so whatever age that makes me in the early 2000s, I found them, I was like, oh, they're funny, they're goofy, they're silly, they're dumb, whatever. And then when I kind of got tired of it and started growing up, I, I noticed the next generation knew Rhett and Link and were following them and were teaching me stuff they're doing. And I've heard recently from our own youth that they're still watching Rhett and Link. So they have some staying power. Five to 10 minute videos usually. And they're like goofy things. Like they would make a local ad that was just, they would ham it up and just be over the top uh, about making these local ads for mom and pop businesses in the area. Or they would just have a video of how many shirts can we try to fit on Rhett? And they would just keep putting shirts on them and they couldn't. Uh, That's it. And if you have never played around on YouTube, that's really all there is on YouTube. So don't worry about it. They're, like I said, five to 10 minutes on average. They came out with videos at the beginning of the year, each one devoted to themselves, finally sharing their testimony. And um, I thought, oh, that's great because I've heard they're Christian. They have like really, really clean content. They're super courteous and nice and just fun hearted people. This is gonna be interesting. And I watched and I saw, whoa, the minutes, the marker at the bottom says an hour and a half. <laughs> that is not normal. So watch the first one. And the second one was no different. They were a video devoted to each of their testimony of leaving the faith that they chose to do just recently. So the first real openly apologetic stance for where they are with the church that they're getting to all these kids It's them saying we're done with it. I watched both of them, and they were heartbreaking. These people had grown up in the church, good environments, safe environments. Uh, They were part of Crew, a worldwide ministry now, um, really popular ministry about helping equip the next group and generations. They were devoted. But here was the main complaint If I could say a common denominator between both videos, it's this. They recognized that the training that they had received from the American church seemed incongruent with the biblical church. Put it this way, they they complained about uh, their church to them, and they were very tactful and, and recognized not every church is like this, but they made points about how they they felt as if the church was worried about them like on an assembly line, cranking out the next widget, the next production, the next event. Look at all the things that I do. And this is very similar to kind of how Pharisees talk. Look at all the things that I've done compared to this man, the bottom of the hill. That 
they never really got holistic teaching. They got strategies on how to do the next thing. This is how you stop doing that sin. They wanted and they were hungry for more. Okay, I'll quit doing that, but what do I go to? And then they really felt like it was all about the nuclear family, the American dream. Now, there's nothing wrong with productions. There's nothing wrong with uh, strategies or the nuclear family. But this is what we're sitting against. This is what we're facing. In this time of COVID, why have a sermon from this passage? Why have a sermon on this topic uh, from the family minister? It's because our kids are growing up in a very similar church. And I don't want to say here at J-Town, but just America, the West, modern society, whatever you want to say. Devotion has been replaced with convenience. And here men, and I, I, know, I know men like Rhett and Link and women like Rhett and Link in my own life, friends of mine who have left the faith and have said the same exact thing. They're not angry at some of the stories of the Bible. They're not angry at not having power. They're upset and sad and feel unheard because they got cheap answers, cheap Band-Aids to life's problems. Like I said, this is a passage that I think has heart not just for kids' ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, newlyweds, you know, uh, marriage ministry, empty nesters, whatever. This is a passage that speaks to all. So let's go to the text. Let's unpack it a bit, and I'll explain what I mean. So verse 25, he says, Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them. I, I, I said this in the first service too. This, since I was a kid, I was always shocked at that, line, that wording. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, and I'm, I'll, I'll own that, but it's almost like he's saying... I noticed how many people were following, so I need to stop and say, do you understand what I'm asking of you? Because that's the segue here. So he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, if he can't bear his own cross and follow me, he can't be my disciple. I do want to just say right out the gate, if anybody's sitting here thinking it, he's not condoning hate, right? Because that would be completely against or antithetical or in contradiction to passages like um, Colossians 3, talking about how children should obey parents and parents have respect for kids, you know, just that mutual love and relationship. And the same for Ephesians 5 with spouses and the family unit. And in 1 John 3 and 4, about loving anybody who calls themselves brother or sister, or the great commandment, loving your neighbor, whether they call themselves brother or not, loving your neighbor as yourself. So what's he getting at? I would say that in comparison to your pursuit and devotion and all-in passion for God, that all these other things that you like would be kind of lost in the dust, that an onlooker would say, oh, you, you like the Celtics? You like basketball? You like baseball? You like art? Neat, I didn't know that, because all I see is this, that there is such an ardent, 
passionate life following Christ that everything else would almost seem as if you were just apathetic and could care less what happens to it. So he's being kind of hyperbolic. But here, I think, is the beauty. And I think a lot of times we miss this. Jesus has followers, meaning he's already been teaching them. So what has he been teaching them? I heard one pastor back in Houston say it this way, and he would be very open about his own diet issues and, and, and weight, and he would say, you know, one reason diets uh, fail for me and, and my friends is our world constantly shows us what not to eat. And I hear this in like counseling scenarios of people trying to get away from addictions and break addictions. It's like the cigarette with a little Ghostbuster symbol on it. The person might be told by some restaurant, no smoking here, but what they see is, ooh, I see a cigarette behind there. I'm going to go smoke outside. And I hear this. And, and, and it made sense when I heard this pastor say it. So I want to say, Christ is not telling them, hey, don't like this stuff. He's saying, in comparison to how much that I have for you and this beauty that I'm offering you and this hope that I'm offering you, you should not even care about these things in, in comparison. So Christ never just says, stop following here without giving us something to go to. Or another way to put it, we can easily focus on so much of what not to do without recognizing what we need to be doing. Abstain from this. Okay. Embrace this. That's where the life is. So how do we foster this passion? How do, we, how do we jump in and have that kind of devotion? Not so we can just say, I hate these things, but so we can say, I'm, I'm in. This is my life. This is how I thrive. I thrive by following Jesus. Where does that come from? I think in this passage, he breaks it up into three simple steps. So the first one, we are called to oikos, not the nuclear family. Now, I'm aware that we do have one professor here, uh, but I was always told in seminary never to use Greek, so I'm breaking like one of their cardinal rules, but English is tricky. <laughs> English has some, some words just fall flat sometimes, and you need like extra words to help define it better. Other languages, not necessarily. You see, oikos here talks about this household mentality. This word is used 120 some odd times in the New Testament, and it is the word that the early church tried to define the church as. You're part of an oikos. You're part of this family that's different than your last name. It's about, are you in this household? You're treated as an equal. Or as Olive Garden would say, when you're here, you're family. And I, um, I'm aware, I, I shared some of this content with my friend who's uh, Italian. And she was like, yeah, like the Italians. And I'm like, yeah. And then I thought, I'm not going to share the Olive Garden thing because I think that's like McDonald's to, to them. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of cultures that do this family way differently. It's like if Eddie were to ask me over to his house for dinner. Now I'm a Goings. That's my last name, Goings. They're the Evans. It would be as if he's not just saying, hey, two families coming together. We're going to talk and just share what it's like. No, it's going to be, yeah, maybe we'll talk and share what it's like to be two different people, but he's going to treat me as an Evans. That's the concept, that while I'm there, I'm one of theirs. I'm going to be treated with the same, think of the prodigal son. When you come home, 
here's everything that's yours again. doesn't matter what you've been through. When you turn and come back to this household, you're treated as if you're one of us. So it's a heavy term, and I would say that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. He intentionally picks family language here to say, not this family, but this one. It's heavy. It's big. One of my favorite lines in uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, he tells a story of Jean Valjean's redemption. And um, the first like 70 pages, I was very shocked about this, is just about the bishop. If you've ever seen the movie or the musical, the bishop has like maybe one song or one line. But Bishop Muriel gets a, like his own like mini book before you even come across Jean Valjean. Well, Jean Valjean is released from prison. He served his time and he says, I'm an ex-con. I, no one will take me in. I'm just treated like scum. And then he sees the parsonage where this bishop resides and he goes and knocks on the door and he holds his paper up and he says, I can't read, but I know what this says. It says I'm a criminal. And it says that I've served my time and it says that I'm dangerous, but trust me, I, and he tries to start defending himself and the bishop like says, shush, stop. <laughs> I know who you are. He said, this place doesn't ask if you have a name, but asks if you have a story. And he says, I know who you are, my son. Your name is my brother. And completely treats him. And if you know the story, he lavishly gives back to Valjean, despite how Valjean acts at times. That is a picture of an Oikos family treatment. To ignore this, to not treat your family here, that way. And I'm guilty of this too at times. I say, oh, I checked in on Sunday morning. I'm good. I'm going to go back to my white picket fence, uh, cul-de-sac house, 2.5 kids, dog and cat, whatever the dream is. I don't live with a, I don't have a picket fence. But anyways, you know, like you've heard these things, right? As if that American dream is the goal and you, you did your time already with the church, maybe you're a super Christian and you go to community group too. That's really no different than saying, yeah, I want to get married when someone proposes to you. And then after the wedding, the ceremony, you go out, you have your first night, and you're like, hey, it's time to go to bed. I'm actually going back home. I didn't tell you this. I'm still living with my parents. I'm going I'm to live with them, but we'll go out and have our dates, and we'll go, we'll still have dinner together, and maybe breakfast at times or whatever, but I'm going to do this. And Christ is calling us into this complete all-in devotion to a new family and leaving behind what we thought was normal. Now, I, I imagine this might be sitting kind of weird with some of you. Let me be a little honest here as to why. Counseling sessions are full of people with family wounds. family of origin stories that left them hurt. And I grew up in a really safe environment, great Christian family, and I still walked away with wounds. Sometimes they're unspoken. Sometimes they're just you inferring. It doesn't matter, it still hurts. And we walk away thinking one way about ourselves, maybe because of how our family treated us. And, and I understand a lot of you have way worse stories 
and they're valid. So asking you to come into a new family, if it's that easy, I think that's what Jesus is also keeping in mind here. It's not. There's something asked of you, and we get it. Some of you might think, yeah, it's not so much that. It's I don't want to be all in at a church. I've been a part of churches, and they hurt me. This is my story, too. When I was about 20, I finally, well, finally, I hit rock bottom, but I finally came to a point where I was repenting publicly about some very public sins that I was doing. My church knew all about these sins. A couple years worth. And I finally said, I've had it. I can't do this. And I was at my wit's end and I was just humbled like crazy. I want help. I want out. I want want to be back with Jesus. And my church swooped in and came alongside me. And you know what they said? We're glad that you're owning this. You can't come here anymore. They said nothing when they were aware of my sins. So it's the complete opposite of what we're asked to do as a church with people. I was on staff at a church, good church. I acquired some wounds from it. This is the first job that I wanted to be back in ministry in 15 some odd years because of them. So I get it. I bet you have a story like that. So asking you to come from here and be all in with this family that's going to treat you as equals might be hard to believe. I'm going to say what you already know the answer is. You can trust. And you can have faith that Jesus is equipping his people to love well. And that's what today's about. That's what our our ministries are about. So I just also want to move on. Before we go to the next thing, I just want to say one more point. We if you think about it, we are wounded in community. That's how we get these wounds. But we can be healed in community too. There is a healing that God has for his people in fellowship. It's hard. I think it's so hard that this is partly why Jesus goes on to give some examples. It's like, I get it. The devotion is going to cost something. So let's look at the next slide. We're called to teleos, not widgets. It's not just about cranking out more things to boast about or say that we do as Christians like the Pharisees. It's about this word teleos. This is, this is a word for me. It's my favorite word of the New Testament. You find it most famously here in Matthew 5, 48, where he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the English translation. But a lot of times, maybe it's because I was a teacher for the past 10 some odd years. When I think of perfect, I think of 100. Errorless, not having any spelling issues or syntactical problems or making sure I carried the one properly. I don't know if math is still that way. I heard it's something different now. I don't know. But that is not the, the case here. The teleos mindset Maybe a better word than perfect would be whole or complete or of integrity. So that's why we can say, be of integrity as your father is integritous. Be whole as he is whole. Here's another way to look at it. He can speak truth. He can say, I'm God, I'm perfect. You can't say those things. That's not integritous. You can say, I'm broken and I need help. That's wholeness. 
that's speaking truth. In my growing up in the church, I didn't hear that enough. I heard perfect, the wrong kind of perfection. And how do you prove that? By more widgets you crank out on the assembly line. So how are we being called to teleos here? Verses 28, for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down, calculate the cost, and see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation, can't finish, all the onlookers would ridicule him, saying the man started to build but wasn't able to finish. This whole section is just rich with completion language. Consider the whole project. Consider the whole cost. Hmm. Consider being seen as a builder of wholeness, not a builder of incompletion, an unintegritous person. And I don't know about you, but I find that a lot right now. I find a lot of people, myself included, I've been there, just gunning right out the door to do these great things for the church or for themselves or for whatever you know, reason, and they fall flat. They lose steam. They don't continue. This is, this is what happens every, you know, not for everybody. We have some people that do a full 365 you know, New Year's resolution. Uh, I've never met those people, but I know they're out there. And that's me. I, I start something, and then I'm like, I'm going to, I don't know, learn Russian. And like a week later, I'm like, I'm going to take naps instead. That one, I can still edit this, and that's my resolution. Take more naps. So I get it. This is also going to bleed into our Christianity, though. We substitute convenience for teleos, for wholeness. We think, well, that's not my ministry. I don't really need to be a part of that. I don't need to pray for them. I'm not called to that. Maybe there's something going on in your heart where God hasn't just given you this huge passion for say children's ministry or youth ministry or empty nest ministry. I don't know what other ministries are. Missions, apologetics. But guess what we can do? We can pray for those people because they're our family. We're going to treat them like equals. We've been called into that kind of brotherhood and sisterhood. That's what it means to be all in. Think of it this way. I, before this job, I got out of teaching. I didn't want to rush jumping into to ministry because I told you a little bit of my story. I thought, I'm going to slow play it and just make sure God has the right fit. And then I thought, well, I've always wanted to be a carpenter or learn carpentry. So I had a chance to be an apprentice under this master carpenter here in town. Fantastic, awesome job. It was great. Um, and the main project I was able to work on uh, while there, I did a lot of small jobs here and there, but the, the beginning to end completion was this huge, just awning, enormous thing that we built onto a mansion, and it was, it was beautiful. The whole time, I couldn't picture it. So the master carpenter had the blueprint, right? He called me to be ready, all in. I'm like, yeah, when do I pick up that thousand-plus-dollar concrete saw? I'm ready. And he's like, no, just get the hammer. <laughs> Hold that hammer, and actually, I will use the hammer. You just be ready with it. So apprentice... Really, I found is another word for gopher, where you just gopher things for them. But I learned a lot. It was fun. That was cool. But here's what I also learned. It's the master carpenter who knows the vision. I wasn't promised that. I was too green. 
If he handed me the blueprint, I would have spilled coffee on it or turned it upside down. I don't know. I would have messed it up. I was so eager to use these giant power tools when I needed to know how to use a square or a level first. And not to say that that's like the litmus of how to do Christianity, but sometimes the only tool we're given is a hammer. But I will say this, how often do you use a hammer versus a concrete saw in life? So here's what Christ does. He calls you into a new family and he equips us to know how to get the job done. And you know what he gives us? This tool. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. That's the hammer. How about a screwdriver? Love your neighbor as yourself. These are things you can use. They're timeless tools. He says, go use these daily. But I know people, and I've been guilty of it myself, that are like, yeah, 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 but when do I get that one verse where I get to go call out all the heretics that I don't like on Facebook and then just, you know, bring those psalm-type prayers and purgatory, you know, judgment on them. Those are real verses. How often do we ever see those used? I'm not saying it's because of the flash or the pizzazz or the power. I think a lot of times we get distracted, and that's why we don't finish the simple job of just continue to hammer away at loving people and showing kindness. So when Christ calls us into this family, he calls us from here in and he says, now part of this means you're going to be all in, even if it's maybe monotonous, even if it's not as exciting. Are you, are you ready? Are you going to be of integrity? Are you going to be of passion and just devotion to what the need is at hand? So don't miss this. You, you've been called... to be there, to be present, to be in, despite the inconvenience. And if you've ever worked on like carpentry or any other kind of job like that, you know that I used to roof. I always wonder why. <laughs> it's so hot. And you go work on a roof and you start putting these shingles down and you're sweating and it's horrible and you're like dead halfway through, but you at least get to look at some of this progress but there's also people at the bottom that are still in the sun too that don't get to see that progress that are part of the helpers. Are we okay being that person? Maybe that doesn't give us that satisfaction of shutting down that bad Facebook argument or calling that one person to repentance. Maybe that's not your conversation. Can you pray for them? That's the hammer. Can you be there for them as a brother and sister just showing grace? Let's look at this last slide. We are also called to an ethos. We're called to ethos, not strategies. Ethos is just a simple way of saying the spirit or the heart of one's worldview, one's outlook. What's your ethos? What's the heart behind it? Listen to the words of Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's pretty hard to miss the ethos of Scripture. It's very clear. But I think it becomes convoluted because we think, oh, it's too clear. Maybe I missed something. We add to it. 
So let's look at these last couple of verses, 31 through 33. What king going to war against another king, if that king has twice as many, is not going to stop and, and consider what's at stake? Can we do this? Can we win? If not, while the king is, the others are far off, sends delegation and asks for terms of peace. If we can treat that first metaphor about building up, this one would be kind of like acting out, going out. Let me put it another way. The eye of a king is very aware of the need of the people. They're contemplative, mindful, knowing what's, what's best. But here's, the, here's the, the caveat here. They're present. The present place is the only spot you can ever act from. Hear that again. The present place is the only spot you can ever act. See, learning from our past mistakes, our wounds, and planning out our future and counting the cost like a master builder, they're necessary. They're huge. They're important. But you can't live in past wounds nor in future plans. You have to act. So where does the difference between the past and the future come from, if not the present? You see, nuclear families, that's a good gift from God. It's a beautiful thing. Being able to produce widgets, things that the church is able to contribute to society, to themselves, whoever, that is a good thing. Planning and strategizing is so good and helpful, but they just aren't the goal. The king can only decide what route to choose if he has an idea what his people are about. What is their mission statement? What's the kingdom about? And I would say that can only come from the heartbeat of what they're about, the ethos. This helps them move. This helps them act. This helps them be present. If you think about it, the past is where all of our shames and sadness are. The future is where all of our fears and anxieties are. If you try to plan an ethos in one of those two things, it's going to be tricky. Be present. Ask the God today, how do I show up in my heart and live out in your kingdom? I don't know, with our riot-focused media and COVID-focused media, even our questions, when are this program or that program or this program going to start up? Those conversations become a slippery slope, I've noticed. It's not inevitable, but I've noticed we're worried. Rightly. We're afraid. Rightly. But it's so easy to get stuck in the past or the future, and operate from those. The ethos of Christ is clear, friends. Love people from an oikos fellowship. Devote yourself to God with a teleos mindset. That's it. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your whole person. Be whole and love your neighbor as yourself, as your family. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the ethos of the kingdom. Act from this place. So what does this have to do with family ministries? What does this have to do with our church? What does this have to do with any of the ministries here? What does this have to do with you just sitting there wondering maybe what today is going to hold for you after we, we dismiss, which is a normal thought? What does this have to do? It's all done. It's all one and the same. It's all done the same. So let me just start with this little microcosm that I'll call Sojourn Kids and another little microcosm example that I'll call S2, or student ministries here. And maybe that'll help land the plane some. And Sojourn Kids, we're kind of tired of waiting for COVID to end <laughs> uh, and just putting our finger in a leak. And so we're just kind of all in on some more high-end social media online presence for kids. We, we just want to be as available and accessible as possible for our kids right now and just put all of our eggs in that basket until we can open. Even if we open in just a couple weeks, yeah, we're going to continue those next couple weeks giving all this attention there. With that, we have a lot of volunteers that want to be on camera as much as possible because they understand we want the family of Sojourn Kids volunteers present. These kids can see their, their big brothers and big sisters there loving on them present, available, accessible. Essentially devoting time, right? That's what it is. But they also, we've talked about this since I've been here, that they want to show up and say to these kids, hey, we're broken too. We mess up too, but we're still lovable. God still desires us. So when you mess up, and you will, know that there's love for you. I was talking to a, a student who uh, just started college this week and uh, just sent him a message saying, hey, praying for you? You didn't get to know me too long because <laughs> I haven't been here long, but I love you. I may be praying for you. And just know that any time you mess up and you fail, which you will, you can call me. You can vent. You can yell, you can just cry, you can text if you want. I wanted to make myself available because that's the thing I wish I had had at that time. And naturally, he was very happy about that. But I think that's the cry of most of us here. That's the cry of Rhett and Link and all other apostates. They wanted more and didn't know where to find it. So our S2, for example alongside our weekly gatherings, which are starting back up uh, the first Wednesday of September. Um, we also are, are working with our team there to develop a very intentional discipleship that can show these young women and young men what it's like to grow up into adulthood. And sometimes that might be, hey, do a group of y'all want to go uh, run errands with me? I got to go get diapers because <laughs> that's adulthood sometimes. It's not flashy, it's not fun, it's not using that $1,000 saw. It's picking up a piece of tape and mapping out where you're going to paint. And that's boring work, but you got to do it. And we want to show these kids that that's sometimes life. But so is our brokenness and our failures. 
We want to show the kids that they're in the right growth pattern. If you're failing, it's okay. Everyone else has too. Here's how you get out of it. Here's how you fail less over time. We're also working with people like Chris Wilson with what does it look like to not treat missions as this flash in a pan thing because we're not called to it like the others. But how do we set up local missions so these kids can get used to what it's like to, to, to yeah, I guess what it's like putting something back into the city. Not because of sojourn, not because of whatever school they're a part of, just because they're devoted to Christ's call. So we have some really awesome things, but really it just boils down to this. We want to teach our kids this brilliant lesson that we found on a, in, a, in a GIF or a GIF, however you pronounce that. And I, I was told it's up and running. We're able to do it. So let's, here's sanctification. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but you guys having a rough day. But he still got to his destination. It wasn't how he thought. Okay, you can turn it off. <laughs> so, but isn't that the Christian life? And I feel like Rhett and Link, and I feel like myself when I was 20, and I feel like all the kids that I've taught the past 10 years all say the same. Oh, that's, that's normal? That is not what I've been hearing. Man, what a steep hill to have to climb. So all this can be summed up really simply. It doesn't matter if you're in youth or missions or whatever. It all lands the same. That anybody that walks through these doors is welcomed and feels lovable and feels worth the name of the household they're walking into, which is not Sojourn J-Town. It's, it's Christ's. Next, that they be, be built up not just with the right answers up here or the right actions out here, but with knowing how to incorporate their whole self, their heart, their emotions, their, their weaknesses, their strengths. Giving them space to be broken and then encouraging them that God loves them is so empowering. When you think back about your own like youth experiences or, or mission trip experiences, I mean, yeah, we've probably done and seen some cool things, but often isn't it the experience that we're lovable? that stands out in our minds when we have these moments with God. Wow, you love me, you care still for me and you have space for me? Why would we bring anything else to the kids? And lastly, that they be empowered with the heart of the gospel. That is essentially just to know how to love well, not fight better, not outreason the next person. If that's too vague, we'll put it this way, to know how to cultivate love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, rightly. If you want any more specifics on how we're developing this and, and these wings back there, feel free to ask me offline. But my question for you this morning, Christian, is how is this showing up with you? Have you convoluted the heart and the ethos of the gospel? It's okay. We can clean it up. Do you feel welcomed and lovable? 
Give us a chance to help clean that up. Do you feel like you have space to be broken and beloved and not just seen as broken? Give God time. He'll clean that up. So here's one more clear picture of the Christian ethos, to use the, the, the Christian heart, the heart of the gospel. If you look on your seats, you'll have this. This is one of the last times he talks with the disciples. And he devotes that, that time to having a meal with them and treating them like his brothers. And if this isn't an all-in statement of our passions and our hearts of the gospel, I don't know what it is. He tells them, this is my body, broken for you. Take, eat. And then our Lord said, and took the cup, with the wine, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.